Huckabee, news veteran Major Garrett on President Trump's wild ride, author and futurist George Gilder considers life after Google, and John Schneider performs on our stage. That's Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Thank you very, very much, and we are so very happy to have you with us. Great to have this terrific studio audience here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, in the Huckabee Theater. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Are you sometimes confused by what appears to be political games in Washington with Democrats and Republicans blaming the other side for the gridlock that prevents serious solutions to serious issues? Things like health care, national security, and jobs getting addressed. Now, you might be confused, maybe even amused, by what appears to be the back and forth between Congress and the president. Such as when Nancy Pelosi sent the president a letter and said that because of security concerns, he shouldn't come to the House chamber for the State of the Union address, and instead should just send the report in writing. Well, the president followed that up with a letter that canceled Nancy Pelosi's trip with a group of Democrat congressmen to Europe, Middle East, on an Air Force plane. And he said that with the government shut down, the speaker ought to stay in Washington and work to get things back open, which she claimed was her priority. As reliable as a good burp after drinking a Dr. Pepper, <laughs> the media saw Ms. Pelosi's action as bold, strategic, and great political hardball, and equally reliable as a headache after a quick and ample inhaling of a Slurpee the same media saw the president's reaction as childish, retaliatory, and petty. So were the actions of Pelosi and the president political weapons used to hurt the other side? Or were they political tools designed to break the logjam and make progress? Well, it all depends on which side of the ship you're sailing as to whether you see something as a political weapon or a political tool. Let me explain. I hunted deer and Neil guy in South Texas recently with my Weatherby 300.3 rifle. Now, that rifle is an incredible firearm, I'm going to tell you something. And when I'm hunting, that incredible Weatherby rifle is a tool without which I couldn't put meat in my freezer. But to the deer, I'm pretty sure he sees it as a weapon and probably doesn't appreciate it that much. You see, it all depends on which side of the gun you're on and what the purpose of the pursuit might be. Now, if you think we ought to have open borders and believe that walls or fences are inherently immoral and you believe that there should be no immigration control, you're going to view any border structure as a weapon. But if you believe that one of the few and limited reasons that a government should even exist is to protect its people and defend its borders, then you're going to see a wall, a fence, or some other form of control as a tool to defend the country and control access. But if you do believe that any form of wall or barrier is immoral, as Nancy Pelosi has stated, then you ought to keep your doors unlocked at night and never live behind a wall or gated community, as, by the way, Nancy Pelosi herself does. <laughs> because if indeed walls are immoral, then let's get rid of the over 600 miles that we currently have along our southern border. Let's order the barriers around the U.S. Capitol and the White House removed, as well as around our airports, state capitals, nuclear facilities, prisons, and absolutely, let's get rid of the one around Fort Knox. What do you think? <laughs> Frankly, some of the greatest people I've ever met are the people who have immigrated to America from countries and cultures from all over the world. They came out of love for America, as well as for the freedom and the opportunities that it offered to them. And they gave back through hard work, raising great families, and contributing to our melting pot of culture and peoples and ideas. They came to the door, they knocked, they waited their turn, and upon entering, they made us a better country. And for them, our laws weren't weapons to hurt them, but rather tools to empower them to live in freedom and security. 
Our border debate is pretty simple. Either you think America uses its power as a tool to empower people with freedom and safety, or you somehow think it's a weapon of hate and racism and it's intended to suppress people. Look, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. For that, you're on your own. My first guest has been a reporter for CNN, Fox, National Journal, and a number of publications. He's now the chief White House correspondent for CBS News. He's host of the Takeout podcast. He's the author of four books, and his latest is called Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. And I don't think anybody could disagree with that. Please welcome a longtime friend, Major Garrett. Major, great having you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for being, for having me, Governor. It's great to be with you. I thought the book was very honest and raw and, and forthcoming, but at the same time, it was not uh, a gotcha book, was not uh, designed, at least from a reader's perspective, uh, to be, here's all the salacious tales that I've been able to uncover, and I'm going to try to expose all my colleagues and everybody in the White House. I appreciate that appraisal, and it, there are a couple of things I really prioritized in the book. One, look, the president has asked an important question. What is journalism and what is its value? He does this in a very aggressive way. Too aggressive for my taste, as huh. it, you would expect. Sure. But it's an important question. And so I can't answer that in totality, Governor. But what I can do is give an example. And look, I've used unnamed sources in my reporting career, oftentimes quite fruitfully. But I wanted in this book to avoid that temptation and avoid that trap, if you will, and contrast what is oftentimes the only journalism that most people consume, for one where everything is on the record. As you know from looking at the book, everybody's named, everyone's quoted, everyone's title is there. Not because that's the only way to cover the story, but I thought it was the best example of how to verifiably cover this story. The other thing is, I don't hate on this president, I don't love on this president. I describe things that he fairly and accurately describes as accomplishments, and I describe things that have created tremendous controversy and undermined some of his own initiatives. I've always said that if I read a story or watch a story, and I don't know what the, uh, the writer or the broadcaster has as his own point, personal point of view, that's journalism. If when I read it, immediately I know exactly where that person is coming from, that's opinion. That's not journalism. That's advocacy. And this is why I found your book very uh, unique among the books that have been talking about the president's uh, tenure so far. Objectively, what would you say has been the greatest accomplishment that he has been able to get done as a president? One of them, for sure, we can say with absolute clarity, the two Supreme Court judges and the numerous federal appeals court judges nominated and confirmed by this president are beginning to reshape the federal judiciary and will leave a Trumpian legacy on the federal courts for years, if not decades, to come. The other thing is the changed tax code, the way we tax corporations, the way we tax individuals, the way we have simplified the code will have ramifications economically and from a budgetary perspective for at least a decade, possibly longer. I write in the book that when even a voice like Bernie Sanders says, yes, we have got to make the middle class parts of the Trump tax cut permanent, you know something transformative has happened, not just as a matter of policy, but as a matter of politics. The president talks about deregulation with some frequency. I have an entire chapter devoted to that very dry and hard to sex up topic of deregulation. I didn't try to sex it up. I just tried to document it because I compared the president's inclinations there with the last deregulatory-oriented president in American history, Ronald Reagan. And I say Trump's record is better if you believe more is better. I would say in those three areas at least, the effect of the Trump presidency has already been significant, and whether it's one term or two terms will be long-lasting. Does the press have some responsibility in, and let me just be blunt, cleaning up its act and, and presenting itself with less passion and with a, a greater view toward being right than being first. 
Is that a legitimate criticism of the press that we have? It's a legitimate criticism. Uh, Governor, long before the Trump era, I used to, uh, with some frequency, give speeches, and there would be a very kind introduction of me, and I would come to the mic, and I would say, that was so nice of you, but really what my introduction should read is as follows. Major Garrett is a semi-well-known figure in an industry with declining market share and record low credibility. <laughs> Next time I introduce you, that's exactly how I'm going to do it then. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Two facts. And the media has to own that. We have to ask ourselves relentlessly, are these things coincidental or are they reinforcing? And I think they are both. I mean, they're reinforcing and they're happening at the same time. We're losing market share and we're losing credibility. Those are not misaligned or unaligned or not related to one another. They're definitely related to one another. And there are aspects of social media and social conversation that are so immediate, that are so of the not just moment, but of the point of view moment, that things run roughshod over facts, context, history, and accuracy, and what a lawyer might call probity. Taking time to take the measure of the moment and explain it in a way that is not only useful, but accurate and memorable. And look, I'm, I'm in no position to lecture any of my colleagues. I can just do what I've done. But you were gracious enough in the intro to mention some of the places I've worked. I've been at a lot of different places with lots of different kinds of newsrooms. Yeah. And maybe I've taken the measure of the hostility either to the Washington Times or to CNN or to Fox or to CBS on board myself. And armed myself with a sense, you know how to deal with that? Be right. Well, I want to say to all of our audience, Major Garrett's No Holes Barred book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, is available at Amazon, all other bookstores. You can listen to his podcast at takeoutpodcast.com. Follow him on Twitter at MajorCBS. All right, Keith, why don't you tell us what kind of wild ride we've got in store for the audience tonight? Well, coming up, the actor who melted millions of hearts, John Schneider. Also, we'll consider life after Google with author George Gilder. And later, meet Huck's hero and Israel's friend, Laurie Cardoza Moore. Lots more Huckabee is on the way. Boy, that's fun coming back to a Michael Jackson song. I was this close. I mean, this close to getting up and doing the moonwalk. I want to see it. I want to see it. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe, maybe next week I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll work on it a little bit. Never. <laughs> My next guest is a singer and TV star. As a teenager, he broke into the showbiz scene playing Bo Duke in the 1979 CBS hit, The Dukes of Hazard. And he obviously has a few fans out here tonight, that's for sure. Well, he has starred in many other projects. He recently took to the dance floor on ABC's Dancing with the Stars. Maybe I'll ask him to moonwalk. But he's also recorded enough hit songs to fill the General Lee, an amazing person. Please welcome Mr. John Schneider. It's so wonderful to be here. I used to tour with, with uh, Conway Twitty. Yes. I used to live with Johnny Cash. I have, not, I have not been in this part of the world since before Brooks met Dunn. And I, <laughs> I'm so delighted to be here, and I loved your monologue. It's oh, so thank wonderful you. to hear good common sense, isn't it? Well, thank you. Nice. Thank you. Oh, so refreshing, because... I've spent quite a bit of time out in an area where, you know, that's in short supply. We've heard that. Yes. We have. Yes. But, you know, one of the things that I think people love about you, you're the ultimate Renaissance man, actor, songwriter, singer, performer, author. Is there anything well, you can't do? Apparently dance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you did pretty well. You went, what, seven weeks? I went seven weeks. That was, it was so much fun, and it was so hard. I lost 26 pounds. My God. Doing that. And uh, Emma was, was wonderful and awful at the same time. <laughs> People say, what was Dancing with the Stars like? And I say, it's a lot like 
like hot yoga. <laughs> you think maybe this time you're going to make it through and you just can't wait for it to be over. And they introduced me as a country singer there as well because I'd had a bunch of hits uh -huh. way back in the 80s and it was You had it, four a great number way. ones, right? I mean I did four number one songs. Huge. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Huge. Yeah. Ours the president would say huge. 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 Was huge. Yes. Well, oh I want to ask you about how it feels to realize that Dukes of Hazard, this show that some people thought would never work, <laughs> but it was a just blockbuster success. And after the seasons ended, it's been 30, almost 35 years, not quite, but almost. And since it ended, yeah, 40 since we started. People are still watching Dukes of Hazard because it is a timeless story of wholesome life in the South. And you yes. don't see that very much anymore. No, and, and the great thing about Dukes is that people would watch it together as a family. Yeah. So when people talk to me about Dukes, they don't necessarily talk about episodes that they liked, but they talk about they were sitting on the couch with their grandma or their grandpa, they're eating popcorn on a TV tray. They have wonderful memories of the experience of Friday nights at 8 o'clock. And that's quite wonderful, because actually the only place you can see Dukes of Hazard now, because the world has lost its mind, yes. is on, is on uh, Amazon Prime. We're kind of the victims of collateral damage and a certain amount of, you know, revisionist history. And st I'm from New York, so, I mean, my gosh. It's revisionist history. It's intentional stupidity. It's how people want to be upset collectively about something. You know, and I... I was raised to believe that if, if, if in a week's time you hadn't offended somebody, you probably hadn't said anything. <laughs> right? Uh, and and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just kind of in a, uh, it's a mystery to me how things have gotten where they are. That's why I am so delighted to be here. Well, thank you. And we're delighted to have you. And I want to kind of fast forward from Dukes okay. of Hazard because, I mean, it's, it's never been that John Schneider just sort of had this one moment in entertainment and that was it. I mean, it's been music, it has been performance and acting and so many different things, but you've got this huge project. And, and again, it really is a big one, the Odyssey that you're doing. The Odyssey Project, yes. E explain what that is. Um, the Odyssey Project, uh, is a 52-song project. We released one song every Tuesday of 2018 uh, because we wanted people to get used to John Schneider, the singer, again. Mm. But the, the, origin, the origins of the Odyssey are really cool because uh, I used to record here in Nashville. I came to some of the greatest songwriters in town and said simply, I don't want to hear the song you think is a song that belongs on radio. I want to hear that song, Paul Overstreet, Chuck Cannon, mm. uh, Whispering Bill Anderson. I want to hear that song that as soon as you wrote it, you were sure it was a smash, but for some reason that you don't understand, no one has cut it yet. Hmm. So I want the favorite song of the greatest songwriters in the world, and that's what I want to hear. And we got the, the group of the most wonderful songs that came because every songwriter has that mystery song. Yeah. How come I'm the only one that thinks this is great? So they're really quite wonderful. I'm very, very proud of it. And uh, you can get that, by the way, we're completely independent, we're independently produced, we're independently financed, we are all in. So if you would like to listen to some of this music, please go to johnschneiderstudios.com or get my app. It's free and it will take you there. You can kick the tires and sample the music and if you like it, please, please, please purchase it and share it with your friends. Let them know that this is your new favorite song, maybe. And I think uh, people are going to love it. I hope you'll get your copy of John Schneider's CD, The Odyssey. You can get it at your favorite online music retailers at johnschneiderstudios.com. And as he said, on the John Schneider app. By the way, um, stay tuned because John's going to be coming back to perform. And he is so cool. This guy is absolutely cool enough to let me sit in on bass when we do that song. Wouldn't have it any other way. You can also see his exclusive performance of Like a River, and that's going to be a bonus special. That's only on Huckabee.tv, another opportunity to see John Schneider. All right, Keith, why don't you tell the folks at home what else we got coming up on the show tonight? Next, Mike tackles the news stories you have questions about, and economist George Gilder looks at the future of the web's biggest players. Then, news with a punchline when Huckabee returns in 60 seconds.
Dan, thanks for staying with us. But then again, what else did you have to do that was better than this? That's for sure. Well, we've got border security news that's going to make you go loony. Plus several important news issues that maybe you've been brought up on this week's Facts of the Matter. From the pages of my daily news commentary site, MikeHuckabee.com, comes a political mess akin to a Looney Tunes cartoon. President Trump made an offer to end the border security stalemate and the government shutdown. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats would receive a three-year extension of deportation protection for all of the DACA recipients, plus $800 million in urgent humanitarian assistance and $805 million in new drug detection technology. In exchange for the $5.7 billion, which, by the way, that's less than the shutdown has already cost, and that money would go for a strategic deployment of physical barriers. Now, the deal was so generous that some Republicans balked at it, yet Speaker Pelosi rejected it before it was even made. She's proving why the Democrats picked donkey as their symbol. <laughs> a creature famous for being incredibly stubborn and immovable. Why? Even that bastion of conservatism, the Washington Post urged Pelosi in an editorial to take Trump's offer. Well, if I may offer an explanation as to why she declined, I think the problem is that Trump has driven his opponents daffy. And I mean literally daffy. Remember the old Looney Tunes cartoons where Bugs Bunny would argue with Daffy Duck about whether it was duck season or rabbit hunting season? And the wily bugs would get Daffy so riled up and confused that eventually he would not only insist that it was duck season, he would demand that Elmer Fudd shoot him. <laughs> well, that's kind of where the Democratic leadership is right now. Trump knows they have discombobulated themselves with anti-Trump resistance, rhetoric, and kowtowing to the Trumpist Hitler far-left nut brigade. So much so that he can offer them a deal that's filled with things they previously supported, and they will furiously reject it out of force of habit. What they've done is paint themselves into a corner, and Trump is now playing them like bugs played Daffy. And here's an amazing fact. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Morris poll found that Trump's job approval rating among Hispanics has risen by a shocking 19 points to 50% since the wall standoff began in December. Well, this is only a surprise if you think Hispanics don't notice that Trump has ushered in the lowest Hispanic unemployment rate in all of history, or that Hispanics all approve of unfettered illegal immigration, even though illegal immigrants compete and they drive down the wages of the jobs that many legal Hispanics uh, who are immigrants already do. Well, I think it's possible that Trump made that incredibly conciliatory offer because he knew his opponents would be too stubborn, stupid, and locked into the habit of blind partisan opposition to take it, thereby alienating many of their key supporters, including government workers, Hispanics, and of course, the media. If they take Trump's deal, he gets his wall funding. If they don't, then anyone who continues to argue that the government shutdown is the fault of anyone other than the Democrats will look as ridiculous as Daffy Duck. And that's a fact. Now, let's consider what's in the news that has caught your interest. We get wonderful reaction from audience uh, viewers from all over the country. This is from Marissa in Rhode Island. She writes this. She says, we celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday on January 21st. What do you believe his biggest accomplishment was that still resonates in today's divisive climate? Well, Marissa, I, I think he left many legacies. And one of the things that I did when I was a student in grad school uh, was to spend hours and hours listening to his sermons. And they were on uh, audio tape. I still to this day, I know everybody says his greatest speech was I Have a Dream. If you've never heard the last speech he made on April the 3rd, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, called The Drum Major Instinct, I urge you, I urge you to listen to it. One of the most powerful oratorical addresses I've ever heard. Here's what I believe his greatest uh, legacy was. It wasn't just to tell us that racism is wrong. It was to tell us that love is right. It was to tell us that you don't answer the hostilities of somebody who hates you by hitting them or hurting them or engaging in violence. That you respond by loving them and by nonviolence. 
And that's kind of hard to believe. And boy, do we ever need that message again today. But what a great message it was, is, and will forever be. And it was based on his belief in the Christian scriptures. So we also got this from Sharon in Michigan. Actress Alyssa Milano created a social media storm this week when she tweeted, and I quote, the red MAGA hat is the new white hood, end quote. Now, Sharon goes on to ask, as someone who voted for Trump and works in worship side by side with people of many ethnic backgrounds, I take offense at this statement. Why is she attacking everyone as racist with this statement? Well, Sharon, I think the answer is some people live in a little bubble, and most of the people in Hollywood do. And it's tragic to me that they don't know who we are. Many of us who live in parts of middle America, uh, we go to churches that are colorblind. Uh, there are people of every kind of color and ethnic diversity who are a part of that church. We have friends, we have relatives, we have uh, people all around us. And we don't see it in terms of color, though they may think we do. And the fact is, what happened to those young boys in Covington, Kentucky, it's just one of the most despicable things I've ever seen in my life. And when some of the celebrities, including people like Alyssa Milano, wished harm upon kids, here's what I hope that some really, really good and smart lawyers will sue the ever-loving britches off of some of these people for defamation of these kids' character. Now, this one comes from Terry in North Carolina. He's concerned about the rise of socialism in America, and he writes, according to a Gallup poll last August, 18 to 29-year-old people like socialism over capitalism, 51% to 45%. And 57% of Democrats now say they hold a positive view of socialism compared to 47% for capitalism. You know, they used to call socialism communism without guns. So what's the reason for this alarming trend, asked Terry. I think the answer is fairly simple, is that a lot of people are too young to remember what socialism, communism, and all of the isms really did. Millions of people were murdered because of it. It did not bring the level of life up. If you ever saw life in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe during the time when socialism was the economic standard, you know that those people lived in the, the depravity of things that we had plenty of in America. People in poverty in America had more than people who were so-called middle class in many of those nations under socialism. Look no further than to Venezuela, just south of us. Here was a nation that had all the great oil resources, had so much prosperity until they decided to become socialist. And now people are starving. Their currency is worth nothing. And those are people who can't even line up and find a roll of toilet paper. When they sing, when the roll is called up yonder, they're singing it for an entirely different reason than most of us ever would. Well, that's all the time we've got for your questions and comments. I hope you'll write me with yours. You can email me at my2cents at tbn.tv. That's my2cents at tbn.tv. Share what's on your mind, and hopefully we'll talk it over on this segment. And until next time, that's all, folks, for Facts of the Matter. Well, my next guest is one of the world's most influential economists, writers, and futurists. His books have included such titles as Wealth and Poverty and The Israel Test. His latest, and I love the title, Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of Blockchain Economy. It is a true honor to welcome one of the world's greatest minds, Mr. George Gilder. George, it's a pleasure having you here. Thank you. All right, I gotta ask about the shirt. I mean, I clearly know, 1517, Martin Luther starts the Reformation. Let's start with the significance of that T-shirt right here. Well, it's 500 years have passed, more than 500 years have passed, and we're in the midst of a new Reformation that's attacking the new great secular establishment of the universities, and uh, which currently in their regime of political correctness are uh, miseducating a whole generation of young people to not even understand the difference between capitalism and socialism. You know, I heard this week uh, the, the girl wonder for the Democratic Party now, uh, Alexandria 
Ocasio-Cortez, and she yep. said that nobody should be a billionaire. And then, of course, she said, well, maybe Bill Gates is okay, maybe Warren Buffett is okay. And suddenly she started making excuses, and I'm wondering, would you like to get rid of all of the Apple devices and all of uh, Microsoft products and all of the nice things that we enjoy in software? Because that's where this stuff happened. It was capitalism that brought these products, the smartphone, to every hand in America. Well, uh, in 1990, I said that the computer of the future would be as portable as your watch, as personal as your wallet. It would recognize speech. It would navigate streets. It would collect your news and your mail. And that was a great invention and a great development that's now manifest. But we're about ready for reformation because along with the smartphone has become this porous pyramid of internet architecture where all the money and data and power rises to the top. And in order to participate in transactions, you gotta virtually strip yourself naked in front of the, your computer and uh, justify yourself to each of the various websites that you might wanna visit. So I think there's time for a reformation and it's coming with the blockchain economy, which restores to individuals the power over their own data and identity. Dr. Gilner, I want to ask you about the term blockchain economy, because it's a term that kind of flies over most yeah, of our heads. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, the blockchain is both a new architecture for the internet that actually establishes security so you don't get millions of items of, a billion items of personal data got lost uh, to hackers in 2018. It gets worse and worse. The more security they apply, the more porous the pyramid becomes. It's and what, how, do, how does that work for me as a consumer? How do I take control? You take control because, because rather than having to adapt a different username and password for each of the hundreds or thousands of, of uh, websites you might visit. Each of those websites has to recognize your own unimpeachable identity on the blockchain. Your book is called After Google. Is there going to be, in the near future, a solution to take power away from Google and Facebook and Twitter and put it back in the consumer's hands. Yes, it's a block stack. That's it. It's called a block stack. It's a way to stop all identity from rising up to the top. So you have to petition Google to figure out who you are. Is there any point at which the government is going to have to step in and regulate these huge social media companies simply because uh, they no longer are just social media companies. They are public utilities, and they are controlling and manipulating Americans and what they think and how they vote. We do not want to have the government, uh, the administrative state, reaching out and uh, regulating every post on a political, on a social network or a, every search result. That is really an absurd position for conservatives to take. So you the think the solution is the market. And you think the market will fix it? It will with the rise, it provided we don't suppress the blockchain and all these cryptographic innovations that provide a complete new architecture for the internet that is a, that is a solution to this very problem that you described. It's life after Google is a life where we control our own information and identities. Well, you can find George Gilder's fascinating book, Life After Google. You can get it on Amazon. You can even Google it <laughs> while you still can. <laughs> All right, Keith, why don't you tell us where we can find out more about Dr. George Gilder and what's next on the show? Well, I certainly will. You can find all his books and his Gilder Technology Report newsletter online at gildertech.com. Coming up, it's In Case You Missed It. Then Huck's hero, Laurie Cardoza Moore. And later, John Schneider performs on Huckabee.
And welcome back. From dad ingenuity to laughs that are criminal, we've got the news that's going to make you want to collude with the Russians on a segment that we called In Case You Missed It. Well, there is a dad in Belgorod, Russia, whose daughters must really love him. But his wife? Eh, not so much. A video went viral showing how he built a homemade snowmobile for his daughters out of a sled that's propelled by two leaf blowers. <laughs> now, mom probably doesn't like the lack of a steering mechanism, although the father's dad's solution, it's to run in front of it as his daughters jet propel themselves over the snow and cheer wildly. Now, at the risk of making another joke that launches a federal investigation, Let's hope Michael Cohen never secretly visited Russia to ride that leaf blower powered sled. <laughs> of course, there was probably no need since he's full of enough hot air to power it all by himself. <laughs> well, spirits were higher than usual here on Lower Broadway in Nashville. And with all the honky tonks there, that's no small feat. When a man was arrested for allegedly selling balloons filled with laughing gas. Nashville police say that Mr. Tamar Lance was caught huffing the balloons himself and offering them for $5 a piece to others. Officers took him into custody and they found two tanks of the nitrous oxide in the back of his car. I'm sure Mr. Nance holds the record for the happiest person ever arrested in Nashville. At the police department in Cutstown, Pennsylvania was overwhelmed with volunteers when they offered the chance for three citizens to get drunk to excess on the police department's dime. Some kind of prank, you think? Oh, no, 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 no. The offer was right there on the police department's Facebook and Twitter accounts. You see, it's their real-life way of teaching sobriety tests to their officers. They just didn't anticipate the flood of volunteers. <laughs> Then again, with a town population of 5,000 or so citizens and a state university with over 10,000 students, you probably don't have to be a math major to anticipate the response to free booze. So the department did have a few stipulations. Volunteers chosen have to be in good health, have a clean criminal record, and no history of drug or alcohol abuse. Then they've got to sign a waiver, and they need a sober companion to take care of them afterward. Oh, and they also have to be willing to drink hard liquor to the point of inebriation. I'm sure that wasn't hard for some of them. One person asked on social media, quote, is there a spectator area? <laughs> and another one asked, will this count as credit for my community service? <laughs> and one local fireman felt a sting of ageism when the cutoff was age 40. He declared, this 52-year-old firefighter is willing to give it a run. <laughs> the sobriety test training won't take place until April, and it's unclear what aptitude test that Police Chief Craig Summers is going to use for the final choice of the lucky three winners. Could be you. All right, finally tonight, we bring you a lesson in persistence from Phoenix, Arizona. After going on a single date, Jacqueline Addis sent a man more than 159,000 text messages. 159,000. She could get a job at the Department of Justice, it sounds like. <laughs> Not everybody will get that, but some of you will. <laughs> some of those messages were threatening over the course of 10 months, according to police records. So what do you bet that her dating profile says, single by choice, just not my choice? The man called the police after he found Addis parked outside his home in July of 2017. Paradise Valley officers escorted her off his property, and that's when the love notes turned to threats. One text read, I'd make sushi out of your kidneys and chopsticks out of your hand bones. Aye, aye. Sounds like she wanted to make sweet nothings out of the poor guy. But now you got to admit, She's mastered the art of real Asian fusion combining Oriental cuisine with mafia bluntness into her writings. In April 2018, Ms. Addis was arrested for trespassing inside his home while the man was abroad. Addis has pleaded not guilty to charges, and her trial is scheduled to begin in February. Hopefully just in time for Valentine's Day. And as a dating service reminder to her target, I, I mean to the gentleman, 
I promise not to stoop to sharing the quote, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. <laughs> and that's all the time that we've got tonight for In Case You Missed It. But just like the Arizona police sifting through 159,000 love notes, we read the news. Next, Hux hero Laurie Cardoza-Moore stands with Israel. And country star John Schneider returns to the stage on Huckabee. Well, a man walks into a Pittsburgh synagogue, shouts anti-Semitic slurs, and then proceeds to murder 11 people. Just one example of the rising level of anti-Semitism in our nation. My next guest has made it her mission to dismantle anti-Semitism at the root, and that's what makes her tonight's Huck's hero. and I'm the president of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations. The mission of PJTN is to educate Christians about their biblical responsibility to stand with our Jewish brethren and defend the state of Israel against the rise of anti-Semitism. For someone who doesn't think that anti-Semitism is a growing problem, they're not looking at the evidence. In the United States, we saw an almost 70% increase in anti-Semitism. Many of those incidents are occurring now on secondary and higher ed campuses. A friend of mine contacted me and said, you'll never believe what our children are being taught in Williamson County schools right here in Franklin, Tennessee. There was a quote that legitimized Palestinians blowing themselves up in a Jerusalem restaurant because they were waging a war against Israeli government policies and army actions. The textbook we found, the Pearson published British-based textbook publishing company who owns 80% of the textbooks being used here in the United States of America, whose shareholders include Libya, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. They are British-based. They're not even U.S.-based. Do those countries who are shareholders, who Pearson is beholden to, have an interest in the well-being of America? She serves as special envoy to the United Nations for human rights and anti-Semitism, but her fight goes much further than that. Would you please welcome Laurie Cardoza-Moore. Laurie, it's great having you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. How did this quest for you, fighting anti-Semitism and, and for true justice, where did this start? I read the Bible, and I knew that God made a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants forever. So how has the church missed this important part of the Bible um, throughout history? When you go back and you look at the pogroms, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, you know, it was typically Christians who were involved in persecuting the Jewish people. So take, for example, the Holocaust. Germany was a Christian nation. So how does this happen, Governor? How do we um, find a society, a culture that is Christian-based, Catholic and Protestant, that would allow and tolerate the murder of all these Jews, six million Jews. A lot of my Christian friends don't understand why Christians are so supportive of Israel as a nation and the right. Jewish people and are fighting anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Do you get that from Absolutely, absolutely. What do they the, say? The Jewish community is shocked that, a, that Christians yeah. would fight for them. I have Jewish friends who say to me, you're more pro-Zionist, pro-Israel than most of the people I know. You also are fighting what is really, to me, one of the most insidious dangers going on in their country, and that's textbooks that our children are being exposed to, not just at the university right. level, no. But at the junior high level, the elementary level, the high school level. 30 miles south of here, belt buckle of the Bible belt, 
And when I looked at the textbook, when I looked at the instructional materials, some of the materials were published by CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. A radical organization, How, yes, if anybody knows it. Muslim, radical. An arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, yeah. listed as an unindicted co-conspirator in the largest terrorist fundraising operation in the history of the United States of America, and they are publishing content, instructional materials for, for our children. Don't you get people who say, oh, come on, no, Laurie. That's not the parents. You know who I get that response from? Who do you get it from? The superintendents and the school board members But when they read the America, content, what do they say when they see it in the They said to us, because we told them we want yeah. that textbook out of our schools, and when they voted to approve and keep that textbook, they said that that one quote did not justify removing the whole book. It was riddled with anti-American, anti-Judeo-Christian. Give me some examples of that. Pro-Islamic content. Of course, the, the quote about the, that we saw in that segment, yeah. um, Israel is, an, uh, is um, occupying Palestinian land. It's not an occupying. It, they want to be accurate. It should be, it should be stated as disputed territories. But of course, we know that it's not because of the biblical. What can the average citizen do? What can just an ordinary person watching you tonight, what can they do? Well, the first thing that what we can do is we can make our children bring their textbooks home, review the textbooks, history, look at the content. We are, we are undermining the, the future of our constitutional republic if we do not. We cannot, the other thing, we cannot remain silent. We have got to speak out against this insidious this hatred because we are losing our country. We see the rise of anti-Semitic incidents in secondary schools on the rise now because of the content that is being taught to our children. Governor, we can win. We can take back local control of our children's education. Well, I hope that's exactly what we will do. So on that note, I want to switch gears. Okay. Because you've honored me by having me on the program tonight. Well, thank you. Tonight. You've honored us to be here. I am so grateful. Are we not grateful for this man? Thank you. Thank you. Every year, we give the at the NRB the Tree of Life Award to a recipient who is worthy, who has gone above and beyond the call of duty to defend Israel and our Jewish brethren. And Governor Huckabee, it is an honor for me to present to you the Tree of Life Award, Ed McAteer, oh. 2019 Tree of Life Award for you only, sir. Thank you. God bless Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I am very honored and flattered. That means honored a lot. Honored to be here. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Beautiful. Well, if you are as big a supporter of Israel as I am, you need to check out pjtn.org to see how you can help join the fight against anti-Semitism. You can donate, you can purchase exclusive documentaries, and even sign up to join the fight. It's pjtn.org. Now, we still have more for you on tonight's show, and Keith Bilbrey is going to tell you a little bit about it. I would love to. Stay tuned. John Schneider performs a song to honor our soldiers. Huckabee is back in 60 seconds. Well, be sure to visit Huckabee.tv to hear the incredible song Like a River exclusively on Huckabee.tv. It's a fantastic performance. Here now to sing an inspiring song for those who fight for our freedom, please welcome John Schneider. He's been home about six months now, and he still has his doubts. He's not quite sure how he got here or how he's going to get out. Mama says he looks the same as he did before he left. But if she could see inside of him, it would scare her to death. Because he can still taste the powder from the barrel of his gun. He can hear his sergeant screaming, run, soldier, run. He can feel the backpack on his shoulders, God, it weighs a ton. And he sees death in every single thought. They taught him how to put that uniform on. He 
just can't get it off. Last Saturday, they honored him at a small parade downtown. And when they shot off those fireworks, he nearly hit the ground. While the whole town stood and cheered for him, all he could do was stare. Because part of him is here at home, but part of him's back there. Where he can still taste the powder from the barrel of his gun. He can hear his sergeant screaming, run soldier, run. He can still taste the powder from the barrel of his gun. He can hear his sergeant screaming, run, soldier, run. He can feel the backpack on his shoulders, God, it weighs a ton. And he sees death in every single thought. They taught him how that uniform on you just can't get it off you know the devil's won some battles he may win some more but don't he know that the American soldier always wins the war 